This morning, we're going to be talking about the gift of tongues. Lots of smiles, some smirks, some laughing. It's going to be fun, because you know I like to play pin the tail on the most controversial topic. But in all honesty, though, really, when we spend time in the Word and we look at what we would consider the challenging parts of Scripture, uh, moments like that grow our faith. And also just sitting in the reality that God is not afraid of our questions. He's also not afraid of the theological baggage that a lot of us carry around. He wants us to live a life of clarity and knowledge and power, which is what we get only from His Word and His Spirit. So my prayer has been, the last couple weeks leading up to this, uh, just plainly that we would be encouraged by the Spirit because we have been called to such a rich life of growth and adventure by the risen King, Jesus. And it excites me when I think about what our church will continue to look like if we continue to press in and earnestly desire all the gifts. So before we start, I just wanted to define a couple terms that I'll be using so that we're clear moving on. I'm going to talk about a couple different Uh, streams of theological thought. One of them is cessationism. So cessationists generally, I'm painting, painting with a broad brush, but generally believe that the miraculous gift ceased either when the canon of Scripture was completed or at the death of the last apostle. And continuationism and continuationists believe that the miraculous gifts that we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are still in operation today. And I also just want to remind us all that when I, when I talk about these two different interpretations of Scripture, uh, I'm not pitting them against each other. Uh, here at Grace, your pastors are continuationists, which means that we lead the church in that direction, and that viewpoint molds and shapes the way we preach and teach and live. But if you are a cessationist, you are welcome here at Grace Church as a member, too. You're welcome. Uh, we also should recognize that even in Paul's day, in the first century, the gift of tongues was controversial. What required him to write these letters to the church in Corinth was misuse and mania of the gift of tongues. And so he was clarifying. So it's controversial in our day. It was controversial in their day. And we're just going to lean into that and let the text speak. I want to open with the two verses Uh, that Aaron read earlier from 1 Corinthians 14, 38 and 39. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything is to be done decently and in order. So to be clear from the outset, we believe that the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues are still in operation today. But before I tell you what that means, I need to help some of us because I realize that many of us come from a church background where this gift has been misused and abused. Maybe even you've even been spiritually abused by teachers or pastors that misuse this gift. So before I talk about what the gift is, I I really need to draw a hard line and say this, that the traditional Pentecostal view of the gift of tongues is wrong and unbiblical. And I'll let them speak for themselves, 
uh, on the screen you're going to see from the Assemblies of God, which is the largest evangelical Pentecostal denomination, from their distinctive doctrine, they ask this question. It's on the screen. Can a person be filled with the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? They say this, which is wrong. The scriptures clearly show that speaking in tongues is the initial physical evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. There are those who give testimony to a dynamic and life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit who have never spoken in tongues. Nevertheless, it cannot be said that they are filled with the Spirit in the New Testament sense of the term. There's an essential link between that experience and speaking in other tongues as pointed out above. They, they pull some scriptures out of context. This is the majority of where the controversy lies, right? This is kind of the crux of the whole issue. And just so we're super clear, let's, let's go to the next slide here and leave this up for a minute. The gift of tongues is not proof of salvation. Just want to leave that up, let that linger in the air so that we're all very clear moving forward. Uh, and if you've heard what I just read from the Assemblies of God and you've experienced it, somebody freaking you out, you know, trying to get you to say, should have bought a Honda backwards five times fast to prove that you're a Christian, I can only say I, I'm sorry, and that's a, a misuse of, of Scripture. Now, I have brothers and sisters who I love that are a part of that denomination and are in that stream of evangelicalism, and that's just one thing that we disagree on. I could spend, we could spend an entire sermon refuting the fact that the gift of tongues is not physical proof of salvation, but I only have five minutes, so... Buckle up. Here's three main reasons, the three main reasons why the gift of tongues is not physical proof of salvation. One, the disciples were saved before Pentecost. So they were born again long before Pentecost, probably long before Jesus breathed on them uh, in John 20. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the disciples certainly had come to Jesus and were following him, even though their understanding of him was growing as the Messiah and the Son of God. But certainly when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's evidence of some kind of regenerating work inside of Peter. And Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's salvation. And Jesus said to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he's talking about his disciples. He says this, I have given them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And Jesus goes on, I've guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, uh, Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So while the disciples said goofy stuff, didn't really understand the full picture of what Jesus was doing, even though they had little faith, they had faith. They were saved before Pentecost. Point two, assuming that Pentecost represents a normative salvation experience misses its covenant implications. Now, this is a big deal because the day of Pentecost was not just an individual moment in the lives of those believers. This is the full transition from the old covenant 
to the new covenant. So the experience that they had that day is not a normative, salvific experience. And the interesting thing to me has always been that the traditional Pentecostal view has to account for why wind doesn't rush in. The wind is always missing from the, the initial physical proof of tongues to their salvation. There's never any wind. Well, if you think Acts 2 is normative of a salvation experience, why isn't the whole package there? Well, it's because the promise of Joel that Joel prophesied of the fact that the spirit of the living God would indwell all of his sons and daughters one day, that came true on the day of Pentecost. That's what that moment is. And so what the disciples experienced was a less powerful old covenant relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then at the day of Pentecost, they experienced what all of us who've been born again have experienced. A new covenant, full power, full promise, full indwelling from Jesus, who at that moment was seated at the right hand of the Father, given authority by the Father to pour out his Spirit on the church. So to look at that moment as some kind of normative experience, we miss the narrative of Scripture, the changing of covenants, the fact that we should be thankful that we are in a new and better covenant. We should be grateful that we're on this side of Pentecost. Would it be awesome to see? Absolutely. Will we be able to see it and experience it in glory? Probably. I always laugh with Pastor Rick. We always talk about going into like the theater room of heaven and getting to see some of these moments. I want to see them. I want to see what the Red Sea parted looked like and all those things. But the reality is we should be grateful that we have been brought in like the Corinthians were. Paul says to the Corinthians that uh, they were baptized by the Spirit into one body, and that's what we experience as Christians on the other side of the ruling and reigning Jesus. Which brings me to point three. When scriptures say the baptism in the spirit, that describes the moment of regeneration, new birth, new heart, and is not a secondary event. Again, that moment in the day of Pentecost is more than just for the individual disciples, but it's the, the transition between the old and the new covenant. And so the, the experience that the disciples had is the transition from the older, weaker covenant to the new and better covenant where Jesus pours out his spirit on his church. And as far as Paul is concerned, baptism in the Holy Spirit occurs at conversion. That's when you're justified before the Father, when you put your faith and hope and trust in Christ alone, and when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of God the Son. You are fully empowered and indwelled by the Spirit for life and godliness. Now, that we've wrapped our heads around that, though, we still do believe that there are secondary and empowering and filling moments of us and the Spirit in the life of the Christian. This is the basis of the spiritual gifts, but it's not a you believe, and then later on, you're baptized in the Spirit and are fully saved. We don't believe in two-stage Christianity. It all happens in one moment, but the Spirit does work in secondary events in our life. A good amount of those secondary, empowering Holy Spirit events in scriptures have nothing to do with speaking in tongues. So if you have that weight of, if you come from that kind of background and you're like, man, I don't know if we're really a spirit-filled church. 
because I don't hear anybody talking about speaking in tongues. That, that simply cannot be a barometer for whether or not this church is spirit-filled. Because when you look at the Gospels and the book of Acts, I'll give you some examples. Uh, the scriptures say Jesus has an empowering moment with the Spirit in Luke 4. What does he do? He doesn't speak in tongues. He overcomes the temptation of Satan with the power of the word. You see another moment when Jesus gets off the boat, returns to Galilee. He's empowered. Scriptures say he's empowered by the Spirit. What does he do? He casts out demons. He heals people, and he teaches with power. And then you see other occurrences. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she blesses Mary and says a good word over her. Zechariah, what does he do? He prophesies. And there's so many other examples in the book of Acts. You see powerful preaching. You see powerful testimony in front of the officials. Uh, you see maturity. You see Stephen have a vision. All of these other things can happen in these secondary moments. It's not always connected to the gift of tongues. So I want you to look at this chart. This is from Grudem Systematic. And it's just helpful for us to wrap our minds around something visual. These jumps in this line are steps of growth in your life. Things like spiritual gifts being given and exercised. Sin being confessed and killed in your life. Your brothers and sisters in this body blessing you with their gifts for your maturation. And notice the line drops too. Isn't that accurate? Think about those times as a Christian when you've willingly sinned and put off confession and repentance. Those times when you've believed the ridiculous lies of the enemy. And what happens? By God's grace, he moves, rattles our cages for many of us, and wakes us up to the reality and deadliness of sin. And then what happens? We experience deeper intimacy, and deeper fellowship with God, our Father. So there isn't two-stage Christianity. At one point when you're saved, and a later point where you're speaking in tongues and actually filled with the Spirit. I'll let Wayne Grudem uh, talk more about these secondary experiences. He says this, Someone might object that a person who is already full of the Holy Spirit cannot become more full. If a glass is full of water, no more water can be put into it. But a water glass is a poor analogy for us as real people. For God is able to cause us to grow and to be able to contain much more of the Holy Spirit's fullness and power. A better analogy might be a balloon, which can be full of air even though it has very little air in it. When more air is blown in, the balloon expands and in, in a sense is more full. So it is with us. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit and at the same time be able to receive much more of the Holy Spirit as well. It was only Jesus himself to whom the Father gave the Spirit without measure. Another great analogy for these second, third, fourth movements of the Spirit in your life is like a gust of wind in your sails, right? If you're a boat uh, and you're on the journey, uh, walking with Jesus, heading towards glory, the Spirit continually keeps you moving by putting wind in your sails. But occasionally, He sends a gust that propels you forward and farther, most of the time, so often using the gifts and the gifts in your life and the gifts in your brothers' and sisters' lives to make you look more like Jesus and to be more holy, more sanctified, quicker to kill sin, quicker to repent, more like Jesus in all of your relationships. Those are those second, 
third, fourth movements of the Spirit. But I cannot put a chart up like this. Let's put the chart back up and not talk to some of you who may still be in that bottom category. Your concern at this moment should not be what I'm going to teach on about tongues or any spiritual gift for, this mat- for that matter. Your primary concern should be whether or not you have been born again by the power of God, whether or not God has called you to repentance and belief. Is your only hope in life and death the fact that you belong to Jesus, the fact that he alone purchased your salvation, the fact that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary in the first place? I could ask you, non-believer, if you believe, but that word belief is is so convoluted now. The question I want to ask you is not do you intellectually ascend to maybe that the Bible's true and that Jesus is the Son of God. The question I want to ask you is have you put all of your trust in him? Have you picked up your cross and followed him? When you stand before God, Will the first thing you appeal to be your own goodness and righteousness, or will you point to Jesus and say, he is all my righteousness? That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're not, my only prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit who is here and living in these brothers and sisters would chill you to the bone and that you would experience and understand your separation from God and that he would call you to run to him and put your faith and trust and hope in the risen Jesus and his work alone. And for those of us who are believers here, there's so much joy to be found in the Christian life. I don't want you to, to miss that. This, this, this chart is the Christian life. There's not classes of believers. There's not unbaptized by the Spirit and baptized by the Spirit. That's just the difference between non-believers and believers. The gift of tongues is not reserved for super holy people. Every born-again Christian in this room has or will be given a gift by the Holy Spirit. That's just what a plain reading of the New Testament teaches us, and that's incredible. That's what we so often miss in so many places is that we live a supernatural life empowered by the Spirit. That's the life that we're called to live. So if you feel like you're stuck in some kind of monotonous, religious, blah, welcome to grace. And I hope and I pray that you experience the fullness of the Spirit's power for your maturation and for mine, for your blessing and for my blessing, that we leave each week And we go about our week and we show up to events and we continue over time to look more and more like Jesus. And also let me encourage you that I have seen the gifts operating in this church over the last year. Without a doubt, we have seen people miraculously healed. We have seen demon-oppressed people delivered. We have seen the gift of discerning of spirits used. We have seen the gift of prophecy used to deliver hope and peace and also sometimes conviction and repentance. Why? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning. And he is right now 
putting all of his enemies and all of our enemies under his feet. And the Father still loves his children, and he still pours out good gifts on them. And the Spirit is still working in power and still empowering us for all life and godliness and sanctification. The Spirit that is in you, Christian, is the same Spirit that moved in Jesus on the third day and moved him to walk out of that tomb alive. Let that be an encouragement. The, 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 the weak, hopeless, blah, Christianity is disgusting. Let's not be involved in that brand, okay? Let's realize the power that the Spirit gives us. It's not for our own building up. It's for the building up of each other. Paul says it over and over again. If you're exercising a spiritual gift and it's not leading to unity, peace, and maturity in Jesus, stop. But if you're exercising a gift and it is leading to our unity and our maturity and us looking more like Jesus, let's ask God for more of it. So we're going to go, that was a long intro, but we're actually going to get into 1 Corinthians 14 now. So flip to 1 Corinthians 14 with me. We're going to use Wayne Grudem's definition of speaking in tongues to help us unpack what's happening in the text. He says this, speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables, not understood by the speaker. Now, if we go back to, we talked a lot about Pentecost because that's important in understanding the gift of tongues. But if we go back to Acts 2 and we look at what, what the disciples were actually saying when they were speaking in tongues, the word says that they were praising God and telling of the mighty works of God. So to be very clear in that moment, they were not preaching in tongues. When Peter stood up, he was probably speaking Greek or Aramaic or went back and forth between the two when he addressed the crowd. Uh, They were not prophesying in tongues. They were worshiping God in various tongues of the people that were gathered there. So first point, you notice those were real human languages. The people who were there understood them. Uh, They were languages where they were from. At the time, it was a time of a feast. So there were Jews from all over the Near East, from all these different regions, and they were each hearing different disciples praising God in their tongue. Peter gets up, shares the gospel, called to repentance and belief. 3,000 of them were added to the church that day and baptized. That's a full day of baptizing people. Like, I'm thinking about the math on that. You know, you got 11 guys up there, and then there's some other disciples. That's a lot. That's a lot of people per day. So... It's impressive. It's a, it's a unique event in the history of the church. Uh, I also want to just stop and say that that specific miracle can still happen today. There are reports from missionaries in foreign places when they go out and they work, and there's a dialect in a certain region of their country that they don't understand, that they're able to, in that moment, miraculously converse with those people and share the gospel. Now, God does that. He doesn't always do that. He normatively works through the hard work and sacrifice of missionaries, like the family that we sent out, to think that they have invested years, they're going to invest years of their life with a specific people to learn a specific language, to love them and show them the way of Jesus. That's how God normatively works. And before we go too far down that road, and this is the point where the the streams of theology differ, That's not the only kind of tongues in the New Testament. 
real spoken human languages that the speaker doesn't understand or didn't know are not the only types of tongues in the New Testament. Now, this is a very common cessationist argument that we all need to understand. Here it is on the screen. Acts 2 is the first example and governing instance of tongue speaking in the New Testament. Because it was human languages and contemporary tongue speech is not, contemporary tongue speech is not biblical, but some form of psychological emotivism or nonsense gibberish. Now, the major problem with that argument is that nowhere in Scripture does it say that Acts 2 governs every instance of tongue speaking in the New Testament. You have to do a little bit of gymnastics and walking out on a branch to get to the point where that's clear. It's, it's not clear. It's unclear. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, you're going to see things that are not going on in Acts chapter 2. So here we are, 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in a tongue is not speaking to people but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So my first point here is tongue speech is almost always prayer or praise directed to God, not people. And I say almost always because Paul does not explicitly forbid tongue speech being interpreted as something that's spoken or directed to other people. But that is the rare exception. And just understanding this can alleviate a lot of our fear when we think about tongue speaking, because much of the unbiblical madness that we've seen around tongues in the last hundred years centers around people gathered in a congregation like this, and everybody's prophesying in tongues with no interpretation, just they're just getting after it, and it's supposed to be prophecy or praise, and we're supposed to assume that's what's going on. But public tongue speaking in the New Testament is almost always praise and worship directed towards God and interpreted for the edification of the body. So the first thing we got to be careful of is it's a huge mistake to conflate gifts and mix tongues and prophecies together. Paul doesn't do that. They're different things. Verse 7, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the thin air. Go down to verse 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? Well, I will pray with the spirit. I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the spirit, 
How will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks since he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. And then Paul drops this. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And I'll come back to the detail of some of that. But overall, Paul is making a point with all of these illustrations that unintelligible tongue speech in public is unbiblical. It's also unhelpful to outsiders. You skip down to verse 22. He says this, Speaking in tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he's convicted and is called to account the secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. This is a very confusing passage because the word translated here, sign, doesn't carry its positive or negative attribute that it has in the original language. So the word sign literally means sign of God's attitude. So what Paul is saying here, because he explains himself, He says this, tongues that are not understood are a negative sign for unbelievers, right? Because it causes confusion. But prophecy, on the other hand, is a positive sign for unbelievers because secrets are revealed and they know that God is living and active among you. And then Paul gives the guide rails for the use of tongues in a church. He says this, verse 26, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. And if anyone speaks in a tongue, there are to be only two or three at the most in turn and let someone interpret. But if this is this verse 28, it's a big deal. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God crystal clear that Paul is teaching that unintelligible, untranslated tongues should not be shared when the church gathers. Sam Storms puts it this way. He says this, do not permit uninterpreted tongue speech in church, for in doing so, you run the risk of communicating a negative sign to people that will only drive them away. If we continue in verse 29, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets. Verse 33, another big one. Since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So my third point here, did you notice that Paul said... But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. This means, very plainly, that tongues is a gift that the person can control 
They can stop. They're not, they don't have to roll on the floor. The wheels don't have to come off the train for this gift to operate. Tongue speech is clearly self-controlled. This is another guide rail provided by Paul for our sake. And when it's ignored, look at what happens in maybe otherwise good gospel-centered charismatic movements. You may, when you think about uncontrollable tongues, you may immediately think of like the arch-heretic Benny Hinn and his YouTube clips, you know, where it's just wild. You know, there's 500 people. Everybody's rolling on the floor. He's got his jacket off, hitting ladies in the face. It's just, it's the opposite of what verse 33 says. God is the God of order. That's just disordered chaos because he needs another vacation home. So, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. (laughs) But my point in all of this is, is that the New Testament is not unclear on, on the guide rails for this gift, that it is a beautiful gift that it can build up and encourage the body. And I want you to hear my heart here because Matt and Rick and Ryan and I do everything we can in teaching and preaching and living and singing and praying to not quench the Spirit. I beg the Lord that people would come in and say what people said here in this letter that Paul describes. God is really among you. That they would see the gifts operating properly to edify the church and to glorify God and to not make it a show that's about us but it's always a Christ-centered moment where we exalt the risen King who hasn't just gone off and sat down on a throne and ignores us, but still intercedes for us in prayer before the Father and still pours out gifts so that our lives can be improved and sanctified and we can actually grow together. That's what we pray. That's what I want people to see when they come in. I want us to be Spirit-filled and driven by the word. You can be both. You should be both. I think it's just a plain reading of the New Testament. We should be doing everything we can to desire the spiritual gifts, to do things that glorify God in the power of the Spirit, and we should always obey the guide rails that have been set by us for the Spirit in the book that he wrote. It's, it's, I, I just don't understand why we can only have one or the other. Let's have both. And my fourth point is when we consider verses 4, 15, 18, 5, and 39 all together, this is another where the paths may split a little, I think there's a strong case to be made that Paul spoke and sang in tongues in private. So go back to 1 Corinthians 14, 4. It says this, the person who speaks in a tongue builds himself up but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Then verse 15, what then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 5, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. Verse 39, so then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Fourth point, 
tongue speech in prayer and praise in private is clearly a gift from the Holy Spirit that builds up the Christian. D.A. Carson, if you have any respect for him, a wonderful, conservative, evangelical theologian says this, Paul thanks God that he speaks in tongues more than all of his readers. If Paul speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians, yet in the church prefers to speak five intelligible words rather than 10,000 in a tongue, then where does he speak them? The only possible conclusion is that Paul exercised his remarkable tongues gift in private. I, I want to stop here for a minute and recognize the frustration that sometimes comes with these miraculous gifts. Some of you may be thinking right now, well, if you think it's good, then why don't you teach us how to do it? We should have a seminar or a class. What, why, why is there no, uh, you know, what, what's going on? Well, it's because I can't teach you how to speak in tongues, just like I can't teach you how the Spirit might work through you to heal someone or the Spirit may work through you to give someone a word. These gifts are from the Holy Spirit alone, given by the Father sovereignly as he wills in the moment. Don't miss what Paul is doing here. He does not concern himself with the exact perfect examples of the exercising of these gifts, but he does give us guide rails for their use and repeats over and over again, the gifts are to build up the body of Christ in love, unity, and maturity. That's what they're for. And if that's what they're doing, then they are good. So what should we concern ourselves with? Well, the same three things with any of the spiritual gifts. One, do you earnestly desire the miraculous gifts, as Paul commanded? Two, you have to ask yourself, do you really believe that God still operates in this way in this day and still gives good gifts to his sons and daughters? And three, are we paying any attention to the, the guidelines that the Bible gives on the use of these gifts, especially the use of them corporately? So go back to verse 14. So 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Also have to recognize many of us have read that and asked, how does the gift of tongues, specifically praying in tongues, grow me as a Christian? And I'm going to again rely on Grudem here. Very helpful. He says this, God wants to keep us humble to help prevent intellectual pride. Another reason may be to remind us that God is greater than our understanding and that he works in ways that transcend our understanding. Finally, it's a characteristic of much of what God does in the new covenant age that is done in the unseen spiritual realm. Regeneration, genuine prayer, worship in spirit and in truth, the spiritual blessings that come through the Lord's Supper, spiritual warfare, laying up treasures in heaven, setting our minds on things above where Christ is. All these and many more elements of the Christian life involve activities that occur in the unseen spiritual realm. Activities that we do not see or fully understand. In light, in that light, speaking in tongues is simply another activity that occurs in the unseen spiritual realm. An activity we believe is effective because Scripture tells us it is, not because we can comprehend it 
with our minds. To be very clear, I have never been given that gift. I've asked for it. I have not received it or have not received it yet. But if you want to know how to start, it's exactly the same as all the other spiritual gifts. God alone decides who he will bless with it and when he will bless them with it. And we have brothers and sisters in here this morning who enjoy that spiritual gift. And I asked some of them to help me understand their experience with speaking in tongues in prayer. And they described a sweet blessing, praying what the Holy Spirit poured into their heart, much like praying God's words from Scripture back to Him. And they described not an uncontrollable experience, but something that produced deeper faith, wanting more of the Word, increasing confession and repentance, real victory over sin, and a sweet blessing of experiencing God's nearness. So in that context, I echo what Paul says, I wish that you all would experience that. I wish that you all would speak in tongues. Skip down to verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. And if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything is to be done decently and in order. So if you're like me, and you're from primarily a cessationist background, which I am, I went to Liberty University, like, that's like the pinnacle of cessationism. They love it there. And I read a lot of books about it and did a lot of studying there. And I love my, I love my time there. It's a great school. But I came out of that an ardent John MacArthur type cessationist. And what has changed in me is not experiencing things, but a deeper desire to understand the way the New Testament is written and what God says about these gifts. And I'm no Greek expert by any measure, but there's no other way to translate the end of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, do not forbid it. That doesn't like mean something different. He's not using some like first century Jewish colloquialism. We can all pretend if you want to, but that's not what he's doing. He says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. And it's understandable if this feels strange and if it feels new or it feels foreign, but this isn't weird stuff that should frighten us. The power of God frightens unbelievers. Think about when Jesus gets off the boat and the two men who are so violent, they have to be chained up in the tombs, come to him demon-possessed, and he drives them out. And then the town comes out, and they see those two men dressed and sitting at the feet of Jesus. What's their response? They were afraid of his power, and they asked him to leave. That's not the response of a born-again Christian. We want God to exercise his ultimate authority and his power in our lives. And the Bible commands us to ask for more. Because if we 
the wretched sinners that we are don't give our kid a snake when he asks for a fish, that is a first century colloquialism. (laughs) If we don't do that, then why do we think that our Father in heaven wouldn't give us good gifts when we ask for them? So this is not something to be afraid of. Desiring the spiritual gifts, though, will open us up to the enemy's oppression. Why? Because Satan hates a well-armed church. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for all the people you know, for all the relationships that are being reconciled, for all the hurt and the pain that's being dealt with, that the enemy has so long stuck his foot in that door and oppressed you with it. As those doors slam shut by the Spirit's power and we see God exercise his authority, it's a huge problem for the kingdom of Satan. But the good news is, is that he who is in us is infinitely greater and infinitely more powerful than the prince of this world. Satan is on a leash, but our God is not. And so as we beg God to save our children, we shouldn't be surprised when he does. And as we beg God to heal the brokenhearted and the downtrodden and the sick, we shouldn't be surprised when he extends his healing hand. When we ask God for wisdom, like we just finished James, we're commanded to ask God for wisdom because we don't have it. We shouldn't be surprised when he responds with gifts of prophecy and words for our brothers and sisters that continue to push us to look more and more like our risen king. And we shouldn't be surprised if we begin to ask for the gift of tongues that we begin to hear about our brothers and sisters experiencing that gift. We aren't left out in the cold. We have guide rails for what should happen in a corporate gathering. I've explained to you what the beautiful gift of tongues is in prayer and singing in private. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's not. And if you're still a little not on board. We're not passing out snakes next week. I'm not going to hand you a tambourine. Just so you know, I I hate to make an appeal from the pulpit for the music team, (laughs) but if you can play the tambourine and you have any kind of rhythm, you're welcome to have one. I just always worry the people who are most excited about it have the least rhythm, right? It seems to always be like a one-to-one ratio. So if you're really excited about it and you're also very rhythmic, please, you're welcome to bring one. My whole point in all of this is, are we, are we as Christians more formed by certain interpretations of Scripture than by Scripture itself? Or are we more formed by what we think is a normative church experience in 2022 in the United States than what the New Testament commands us to do? I can't answer that question for you. Answering that question for me has, has led to uh, becoming a continuationist and embracing these gifts and, and living in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to do what Paul commands us. We're not going to quench the spirit. We're not going to forbid speaking in tongues. But we're also going to do it decently and in order because God is the God of peace, not chaos. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name. You, the eternal one, forever Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity and love. 
Father, you have always loved the Son. Jesus, you have always loved the Father. Spirit, you have always loved the Father and the Son. We marvel at the incomprehensible eternality of the King that we cry out to. And then we marvel at the gospel that you, Jesus, the eternal Son, became a baby, a a, a weak, fragile human, not to come here and condemn us, but to come here and die for us, keeping the law perfectly and dying in the place of your people. And Spirit, we praise you. We praise you that we experience the new covenant. That as Joel saw when God, you gave him a vision that that you, that God himself would dwell in every son and daughter one day. We live in the reality of that covenant. Blood-bought, spirit-sealed, and we praise you. And Jesus, we pray to you not as uh, just a shepherd in a field during your earthly ministry, but we pray to you right now as you are the king seated on the throne with all authority, putting all things under your feet at this very moment, trampling the enemy in foreign places with the good news of the gospel, setting free the demonically oppressed, the the people who believe the lies of the enemy. You are making all things new. And so we beg you in this moment, I beg you in this moment on behalf of these sweet people, may you give us good gifts. May we be able to minister in power, in spirit and in truth, obeying what you've clearly laid out in Scripture but then also leaning into some of the things that we don't fully understand. Not because we want a a spiritual high or we're seeking an experience, but because we know you work in the unseen. That's where you operate. That's what salvation is. God forgive us for thinking of salvation as just a normative, boring commitment card. Help us to see it again when we pray for our kids and the kids of this church and the outsiders and the non-believers. It's not just a commitment, but it's newness of life. It is the tearing out of a dead, lifeless, rebellious heart and the putting in of a beating, true, loving, living heart that can obey you and that as the word is preached, We can obey this word now because of the Spirit. Not like the Israelites who wandered and complained and were confused and didn't know what to do. We have weak moments, but even greater, we have the Spirit. So give us these good gifts, Lord. We thank you for giving us 14 months You've kept our hearts beating to hear about these things. Make us uncomfortable. 
bring us into the places where we can really grow and know more of you and experience more of you. We ask you these things in power, in the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.